Hello and welcome to another episode of Tess Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at TES. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom teachers today. This season we'll bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These will have been chosen because they continue to have relevance to teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week we're going back to an episode from 2018 when TES editor, John Severs, spoke to Dr. Louise Kay, a specialist in early years education at the University of Sheffield, about school readiness. At this time of year, as we begin to look ahead to September, school readiness is always much talked about in education. And at the time of recording this podcast in 2018, Kay explained the confusion around the term school readiness and the importance of being clear about what exactly it means. And today, as research is published about the effect of the pandemic on school readiness, clarity is perhaps needed here more than ever. Indeed, a report published by the EEF in 2022 found that a large proportion of parents were concerned about their children starting school and the impact that the pandemic had on their child's school readiness. We're returning to this podcast then to shed some light on the issue. Well, there is no clear definition about what school readiness actually means. Um, so that, therefore it's open to interpretation. Um, there are two main issues um, that arise from that. Every year um, around September, October time, we see media headlines that report headlines such as 30% of children aren't school ready. Um, and this is quite confusing. The logical assumption is that school readiness is the point at which children start reception. And that's what it refers to. Um, actually, the, the government look at it as being the transition from reception to year one. Um, so consequently, you've got two different transitions there. You've got your institutional transition where children enter from either home or preschool or nursery into reception. And you've also got your, trans your curricular transition where children make that transition um, from reception into year one. Mm. The problem there is that uh, two very different skill sets are required for those two very different transitions. So um, your transition from reception into year, from the home environment uh, of a previous setting into reception, your skills, a teacher would be looking at things like <clears throat> are children being able to leave the carer, um, being able to have practical skills such as toileting, um, to be able to put their own coat on and feed themselves, um, and to follow instructions and generally be able to function in a classroom. The transition between reception and year one, the skills that we would be looking for there are obviously much more advanced and much more linked to academic outcomes. So children by this point are going to be able to write their name or write a sentence, are going to know basic mathematical concepts. So the, the blurring of what that actually means is very problematic for teachers, parents and children. And that confusion doesn't actually help. Uh, with this idea of school readiness when there's two very different sets of skills and the media are of, often confuse those two different transitions as well as, as I think teachers, what I found in my research, 
was the teachers assumed, and I think logically assumed, that when I was talking about school readiness, I actually meant what children could do on entry into reception. So this construction school readiness uh, that comes through in policy, it does not align with what people actually understand school readiness to be. And I can talk more about that at length, you know, as we go on. Is it a? Is it just a political construct? School readiness? Is it a well-researched, uh, you know, cognitive development uh, process? You know, I mean, how much science is behind even a notion of what school ready might mean? There are different perspectives um, around the school readiness agenda. Um, theoretical perspectives. So you have. The idea that readiness is influenced by children's development rather than the environment. This can't be accelerated beyond the child's natural potential. So, for instance, we wouldn't expect a a one-year-old child to be able to write their name because they're not developmentally ready for that. Um, We've also got an environmentalist perspective where where the focus is on the skills and knowledge children actually need for school. Um, There's also an interactionist perspective Um, which includes uh, the family and the wider community and the part that they play in ensuring children are ready for school and also this idea of schools being ready for children as well because it should be a bi-directional process. Um, And there's a socio-constructivist perspective as well which aligns with the idea that there's no single definition of what school readiness is um, and it's relying on the personal beliefs of those who are actually working with the children so you have there, and this is sort of where my research came into it, because I explored what teachers' beliefs were about school readiness and the tensions between the beliefs of the teachers and the very rigid and uh, instrumental way that policy frameworks, such as DYFS and the good level of development as, as that summative um, assessment at the end of reception, actually measures school readiness. So you've got the very diverse nature of personal belief within a very prescriptive policy framework. And the good level of development um, is a way that the government actually measures whether ch- children are school ready. And so does that allow for some difference? Is a good level of development, is, is that quite a broad term or is that a very, very specific term? The, the good level of development is very specific. So it is the... Um, it is the way that the government, at uh, the end of reception, um, the uh, teacher fills in the early years foundation stage profile, which is a, an, a summative assessment of each child in reception that, that is carried forward into year one. Um, so that, that assessment is, is reported to the government. So teachers are accountable for that. Um, within that, uh, obviously, there's the seven areas of learning. Children are said to have reached a good level of development if they achieve. Um, all the early learning goals in the three pri- prime areas, which are physical development, communication language, and personal and social development, and uh, two of the specific areas of learning, which are um, maths and literacy. So a child effectively could achieve all the early learning goals, um, but not achieve, uh, say, for instance, the more difficult one, which is the writing one, which children year on year find more find difficult to achieve to write a sentence so they might get everything else but they don't actually get that one outcome and therefore they are measured as being not school ready within that construct um, so that's that's quite problematic because you you then sending children into year one 
in a deficit position because they haven't actually met that good level of development, they would be considered to be emerging in that aspect of their learning, which doesn't actually tell you much about what that child can do. Um, that's not actually specified within the Early Years Foundation stage profile. It's only if children actually achieve the expected levels that that's recognised. So is the term school ready too binary? Especially at a time when research suggests that children's capabilities and developmental pathways vary so much. So, uh, I mean, definitely I think you've hit the nail on the head there with the idea of a binary uh, school ready and unready and, and t- Claire Tickle actually referred to it as children being unready. Um, and obviously the good level of development, I think, constructs that binary. Um, the children that don't achieve um, the good level of development as the data report tend to be um, free, children on free school meals, children with English as an additional language, uh, children with special educational needs, boys, uh, summer-born children and gypsy Roma children. So children who are already marginalised uh, in some way within society, um, you know, are the ones that aren't reaching those, those goals and are therefore seen as unready. At a policy level, is there a belief, do you think, that uh, good, and I'm u- using uh, inverted commas here, good EYFS practice should mean that every child is school ready? Is, is there a belief, do you think, in the system that that is, is, a, is a possible target? Um, well, I think, first of all, we need to define actually what school ready is um, yeah. and what age of child that refers to. I think that's really key. Um, I think policymakers believe that an earlier is better um, approach works. So the sooner we start teaching children um, more formal outcomes, and, and I mean maths and literacy, then the better that is going to be as children work the way up through school. Now, there is research out there to suggest that that isn't always the case and it could actually be more damaging to children's self-esteem as learners if if these more formal instrumental technical areas of learning are forced on children when they're you know not ready um themselves developmentally and i know that's sometimes a contentious issue right, about what that actually means but i do think that we need to recognize that the, when children enter reception they um bring with them a wealth of different experiences and also, they are, you know, there's huge differentiation in what they can and cannot do. And they only, teachers only have a very short space of time to ensure that children reach that good level of development at the end of reception. So the teachers, when they talked to them, they talked about things like not having a level playing field. Um, so, you know, all the children, despite their background, are expected to reach those outcomes at the end of reception. Um and it, it, you know, use the word, using the word reductionist, it ignores the, the complexities and the diversity of children that we're actually working with. And they're still so young that some of these children are still four years old when this assessment actually takes place. And they're being, and I know this is the case throughout the school system, but they're then being assessed, at, you know, against children that were born in September and possibly nearly a whole year older than them. So, you know, there are, there are a few issues around that summer-born issue as well. Uh, and the fact that England has a school starting age that I know it's five in, 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 you know, policy, but actually the reality for most children is a school starting age of four due to the September intake. Um, and I think that is a huge, a huge issue. And I think if we could look at that 
and think, you know, maybe if we could move this, this compulsory skills starting age to, to six, like other countries do, um, that might solve a lot of the issues that we see in the early years foundation stage. Well, I know, I guess, I know, I know a lot of the research into some of the, the, the learning challenges children can have are best seen at the age of six as well. I mean, we had a feature on developmental language disorder. We've had stuff on um, children who are born preterm. And a lot of that research yeah. seems to suggest six is the age that children tend to manifest problems or challenges if there are going to be some. So I guess at the age of four, those you might be listed as not school ready when actually there's an undiagnosed problem that is emerging at that point. Or they might yeah. that problem might resolve as well. You know, they might be school yeah. ready a little bit later than other children. I think that I think that the, there was one author who, who referred to it as the gift of time, and I think that is something that we should be looking at giving to children. And I'm not, you know, for me as a teacher, because I am a teacher. If children are are ready to write and they are ready to read, then by all means, let's you know look at children on an individual basis. But it's it's the the problem emerges when we are trying to teach phonics and and send, and how to write sentences to children who can't actually articulate a sentence yet, and we should be focusing on those getting those skills in place, those foundational skills in in place before we we move children on. And I think the fact that teachers have such a short space of time to 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 get children to that good level of development you know, is, is an issue. And, and the good level of development, what I found in my research, absolutely permeated the, the classroom. It was the main focus of, of what the teacher was working towards. She talked about it all the time. Um, and she talked about the pressure that she was placed under and the children were placed under because of this good level of development, because teachers are accountable. So if, say, for instance, their, their target is to get 60% of children to reach the good level of development and only 30% do, then you've obviously got to answer a lot of questions as to why that, that's happened, not just at the school level, but potentially at authority level. And, you know, Ofsted could also come into play at that point as well. So there is a, a level of accountability um, that, that does actually have a massive impact on teachers' practice. And this is part of my concerns around how the good level of development and school readiness agenda is actually impacting on pedagogy and practice within the reception classroom, and it definitely is. There's definitely find, more of a focus. Did you find that for most teachers that you spoke to for your research, and since it, it works against their natural uh, inclination for that age group, and also what their experience tells them they should be doing, are they going against their own um, belief system and based on their own experience and and you have developmental research that they've read? Or do most teachers think this is what they should be doing? Where's the sort of opinion there? I've just missed the last part of that question. Sorry, it just cut out for a second. It was a, it was a, whether teachers are sort of doing this, you know, they buy into this good development uh, dictation on their practice or whether the, their reading of uh, developmental research and whether their intuition and their experience tells them they should be doing something different so they're acting against their own belief system teaching in this way yes definitely they, they there were very clear contradictions and tensions and my my research framework my theoretical framework actually explored contradictions and tensions um so that that came through really strongly in my research that 
um, a lot of the time they felt that they were doing things that weren't in keeping or aligned with their own beliefs around how young children learn. But there was also, um, there was also, and this made me think as well, one instance, uh, sort of, which I think is quite popular in reception schools now, although I don't know whether it'll change after the beginning, but this idea of cursive writing. Mm. And the, the teacher really, really fought against it. And she was, you know, this isn't going to work. It's not, it's not appropriate for these children to be using cursive writing. And was basically told it's a non-negotiable the, the whole school is doing it and you're doing it too. So she 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 once she had to go along with that. And and she said on the whole, when she did it with the children, they could actually do it. And and that made me think as well, sometimes are we holding children back because of our own beliefs and value systems? You know, and we really should be looking at things in a more critical way. But on the whole um, she definitely, I mean, she, she used to tell me, you know, she used to talk about how she wished she didn't have to always be. She could, if she could just play with the children and see where that took them and rather than constantly have to be trying to get writing in there or get math in there and uh, there were definite tensions between her beliefs and practice and very little agency to do anything about it. Do you think a lot of that um, discomfort with, as you say, these these more formal methods is because there's an understanding of the emotional well-being of, of, of the child, the, the sort of emotional development of that child as well, that they, they actually might need some time that's not structured or some time that is not uh, formal learning at, at that age. Uh, I know that we've got a piece in the magazine soon about the key person and how many EYFS settings actually have, are not enforcing the, the key person uh, requirement and how, the damage that is actually doing on some of these kids and relationships with families. Are we seeing that a sort of the not degradation necessarily but the, the the emotional needs of the child are becoming perhaps secondary or the emotional development of the child is becoming secondary i don't think i don't think i think from certainly well people who i know who teach uifs i think personal social skills will always be up there as being and, and communication language skills and i think there's three primary areas underpin um the practice that's going on in, in reception um now, I can't, you know, that may be something that needs to be researched as well and, and to find out, you know, what's going on there. But I do think that the, the data is showing that children's personal social skills at the end of reception are, you know, are good. Um, and I think that's part of, and, and when when we talked about school readiness, the teachers didn't actually call it school readiness. They, they used to use words like preparing children. I said they were preparing children for, for year one. So a lot of that preparation was around that more emotional side. And making sure children felt, you know, didn't feel anxious about moving into year one. So they'd take them up into the classroom and they'd, you know, show them what they were, what was in the classroom. And they'd have circle times around what they thought. And it was a very, you know, children were allowed to express feelings about that transition. So I think that's always going to be a fundamental part of, of um, the early years. I think what is probably, um, what children are probably always getting pushed to one side is perhaps play and also um, the more creative um, aspects of the, of the curriculum as well um, could be, you know, the things that are, are being sidelined for the more formal maths and literacy outcomes. And also these outcomes, I didn't say this before, um, as time has gone on, since we have the desirable learning outcomes, which is the first, you know, attempt at, at framework for, for early years in 1996, 
outcomes have actually been pushed down into reception. So when I first started teaching in year one, we used to look at Dublin and Harvard in year one. And now that is unexpected. You know, children have to actually meet that outcome at the end of reception. So there are certain outcomes, especially in math and literacy, that have been pushed down. So the outcomes are actually harder to reach now than they were, say, you know, seven or eight years ago. Um, so again, that adds another dimension to this problem. In policy, there are two completing discourses in EYFS. That it's both a preparation period for school, but also a change agent in a child's life that is so important in terms of teaching, says Kay. In this section, she goes on to discuss research that she, with others, completed around the construction of the early years teacher as education leaders. I think that within policy, there are, within the EUFS, there are those two definite competing discourses. Um, I mean, you have the whole thing around the unique child and, you know, all this lovely language about how the child is at the centre of everything that we do, yet that child still has to reach all those outcomes at the end of reception. Um, so, yeah, there were definite tensions around what, you know, what it was, what role the, the teacher was playing there. And I guess that takes us into into another area of your research, which is this construction of an early years teacher as an educational leader. Do you want to talk through that a little bit now? Uh, yes, certainly. So we have been, um, myself and Liz Wood, who is the head of school at Sheffield University School of Education, um, have been working with um, Australia Catholic University and Monash University in Australia looking at um, leadership. Uh, the rationale uh, for that that uh, research partnership is that Australia often follow um, English policy initiatives. Uh, there are a few, just like we, we could argue we follow some of America's. Um, so they're looking at, at what we've already done in England with regards to workforce reform, because that's actually currently an initiative in Australia. Um, so what we actually did um, was we started to look at um, the rationale for the workforce reform in England. Um, so. This has obviously happened around 2010, the time of the Nut Brown Review. And the reason for that was because there were uh, obviously variations in quality. It was all about raising standards in, in early childhood education. So not just in across the sectors, you've got your, your PBI sector, your private voluntary and independent sector. And then you've also got your maintained sector, the nursery and the primary schools. And so there was a, a variation in quality across, across um, you know, provision. So the government wanted to raise standards of care and education for children and also to professionalise the, the predominantly female workforce, um, which obviously is is an ongoing issue with, with status and pay um, with early childhood and, and, and people who work within early childhood. This was a way of actually trying to professionalise that workforce and also to offer parents more choice uh, in, in the kind of setting that they could send their children to. Uh, so that was the wider rationale. Um, so what the government actually did then was, was um, they created the early years professional. Uh, they wanted a graduate leader in every setting. Um, and uh, there was a whole host of qualifications. So Cathy Nutt-Brown wrote her Foundation for Quality Review, which then more great childcare looked at. And this is the government response to that and actually uh, rebranded the EYP uh, into the early years teacher status, which is where we are now. Um, so the idea being that this this graduate leader would be responsible for the education and care from birth to the end of reception or the end of foundation stage to improve that quality of provision and also 
professionalise the workforce. And is and you know from from your research, has that been a, a one a welcomed move and two a productive move? I think so. I think it was. I think it was a welcome move. I think people recognise that um, standards. You know, raising standards is a good thing. Um, I think the people that we have been talking to, the professionals that we've been talking to, um, chose to do the EYP or the EYT because of the knowledge that it gave them uh, and the ability then to lead um, settings and manage uh, children's outcomes and staff development. Um, I think one of the key issues with um, the EYT was that, that the government didn't listen to um, casting up Brown's advice that one of the major issues uh, with the EYP um, and the EYT is that it does not have the same, um, it's not equitable to the qualified teacher status. So um, staff who have to, so EYTs and EYPs need a degree. They need Maths and English GCSE. They have to pass the skills test. The current standards for the EYT are almost identical to those of the QTS, yet the qualifications, the two qualifications of the CQTS, with that comes salary, comes uh, professionalism, professional respect, uh, career progression. Uh, you can work throughout the primary primary school, you know, from reception to year six, nursery to year six, whereas the EYT um, is, is often paid a lot less. So you're looking at PBI sector wages, sometimes a pound more an hour than a level three. Um, yet the responsibilities that they have are absolutely huge. But people are still actually making a conscious decision and accepting that that is there, you know, that's the situation, and they're still actually choosing to go and work because they want to work with young children and they feel that they can make a difference with young children. But the, the whole rationale behind professionalising the workforce, that doesn't seem to have worked because you still get uh, EYTs and EYPs who, who are paid less, they have... Um, less um, opportunity for career progression. Uh, often schools, um, well, reception certainly, they wouldn't be able to teach in reception despite the fact they'd be much more knowledgeable than a year six teacher moving down into reception. So there's a whole host of issues with that that uh, qualification. And also, I think what is happening from what we've been seeing is that the qualification itself, people are starting to stop offering it. I think teach first. I've actually um, said that they're going to stop, or Skills Direct, one of them, has said they're going to stop offering the qualification. Uh, universities are starting to pull out because people just aren't signing up for it. And is that another, uh, you know, another real um, example of the, the problem of this dual pressure, you know, this tension that EYFS practitioners are under? You know, we're going to give you professional status, but we're not going to equate it with 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 you know with proper primary teaching qualifications you know there's this this is odd narrative i think around eyfs people who work in the eyfs that again they're, yeah. they're important but not quite as important it, it seems yeah. it seems to dictate a lot of the debate around it as well it, it does and more great childcare liz trust had every opportunity at that point to follow what kathy nut brown had recommended it and, and apply the same status to you know, the EYT and the QTS. I think a massive factor in that is obviously um, econ uh, financial um, implications on the PVI sector because, you know, can't, the, the resources aren't there to actually pay those kind of salaries. Um, 
So, yeah, there's a huge issue with regards to what is going on and, and the lack of, like you say, this idea that early childhood is the most important stage, maybe the investment and everything else, but actually that's not happening in, in reality. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Test Podagogy. Please join us again next week. Today's episode of Tez Podagogy was written and hosted by Kate Parker. If you enjoyed the episode, there's more Tez coverage available on our website. And for a limited time only, you can get three months access to our new digital magazine for just £3. That will get you anytime, anywhere access to read all of the latest education news, research and analysis. As much as you want, all in one place. Head over to tez.com forward slash store forward slash tez dash discount to get yours.